Welcome to episode 202 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. Over the last five, six, seven years, there have been few pieces of federal legislation that have been more politically controversial than Bill C-69, or as it's often referred to in Alberta and by the oil and gas industry, as the No Pipelines Act. It essentially re-tweaked, well, it revised uh, the way the federal government uh, does environmental impact assessments on big projects like pipelines and oil sands projects. Marla Ornstein, director of the Canada West Foundation's Natural Resources Centre, has written a report uh, that suggests some changes, some improvements to the Act. And so I'm going to talk to her about that. Welcome to uh, Energy Talks, Marla. Thanks so much, Markham, and congratulations on episode 202. <laughs> yes, well, it's been quite the ride to get to here. But uh, like you and I haven't spoken for a long time. I used to interview you quite frequently, haven't for a while. Uh, that's my pro that's my bad. I apologize. But it's lovely to have you on the podcast for the first time. And maybe what we should do here is, can you lay out the landscape, you know, Bill C-69, the Environmental Assessment Act, just give us a brief overview for listeners who probably aren't familiar with it. Sure. Well, well a lot of people are, are still using the terminology Bill C-69 because that's that's when, that was what was on all the posters when everybody was protesting against it. But it was actually turned into federal legislation, the Impact Assessment Act, back in 2019. So it's been in in force for about four years now. This is the legislation that has the federal government's um, mandate in it to assess major projects and, and also projects that are um, like on federal lands and under federal jurisdiction. And it, 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 it um, talks both about what kinds of projects the federal governments should be reviewing and approving, and also what are the factors that they're going to consider in doing it. And there's there's really two parts to what's what's going wrong here or what people are protesting about. One has to do with jurisdiction. There is a big court case with the Supreme Court right now. It was, it was the um, government of Alberta brought the, the federal government to court and pretty much all the other provinces lined up behind the province of Alberta. Their contention was uh, basically mitts off federal government. You do not have the jurisdiction to be assessing projects that are essentially entirely within provincial borders and where the, the, the topic of it is entirely a uh, provincial undertaking. We don't know the answer on that one yet. The Supreme Court is probably going to give its ruling later this month. And so everybody's waiting with bated breath. So that question is on the constitutionality. Then there's the practical aspects. This is what I've been looking at more recently. Regardless of the constitutionality, there's still going to be some subset of projects that are that are under federal jurisdiction. Anything that crosses provincial lines, for example, um, and, and a number of other things. This process is really slow. Uh, we did a bit of an analysis. Four years after the the um, the legislation has taken effect, no project is passed stage two of the four stage process. So it is sluggish, uh, and there's a lot of people who are worried about submitting a project under it. So uh, we are looking at what the problems are and and how we might be able to make it better. What kind of projects are we talking about? Oil sands projects are an obvious one. That, that's been a source of friction between the federal government and the Alberta government. Pipelines, because, they, well, not pipelines inside Alberta, inside any province, but ones that cross borders, that's an obvious one where the federal government has some jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. But what other kinds of projects might we be talking about? Yeah, just, just to be clear on the oil sands, it's the oil sand mines, but not the other oil sands. 
Right. The so in-situ production the doesn't yeah, exactly. come under the act. Okay. So there are there are the pipelines. Uh, in, there's the uh, interprovincial transmission lines, offshore wind, nuclear energy, um, pretty much all mining, as well as other things like railroads, highways, airports, et cetera. But a lot of the, the major projects that we're going to need to um, undertake the energy transition are either fall squarely under this act or sort of partially under this act. Um, but the problems that we're looking at are not ones that are just the federal government's problems. This, this problem of sluggishness and duplication and lack of coordination, et cetera, it, it's also there in a lot of the provincial processes and other parts of the process as well, like permitting. So the whole thing takes a long time, sort of no matter where you look right now. Right. And the the uh, ha very often, uh, as I understand it, the proponents uh, have to do essentially two processes. They have to do yes. the provincial one and the federal one, which obviously duplicates. But uh, in your paper, uh, you've identified five problems and you've mm -hmm. identified potential solutions. So what I'd like to do is go through each one of the problems and talk about the solutions that you propose. So sure. let's start with problem number one, which is the jurisdictional duplication and insufficient coordination. What are the some of the solutions that are available to the federal government? Yeah, well, as you as you've just brought up, Markham, sometimes, uh, well, if if a project has to go under federal review, it usually also has to undergo a, a provincial review, and these things are different. And proponents can't just work to the higher standard because their methodologies are different; they're incompatible a lot of the time. So uh, they wind up really having to do the two assessments. There are various ways that this can can be gotten around. For example, the federal government has signed a substitution agreement with British Columbia that says BC. We like your process. You just do the process. We'll make our decision at the end. So there's various ways to get at it. But one project, one assessment process is the goal. That's what we need to do. And um, we need better coordination. Uh, we need better cooperation. And we need everybody to get together on the act so that there really is just one thing going on. The um, I, I, can, I can see the merit of that. And mm -hmm. uh, I interviewed... Um, the Canadian Energy Research Institute back in like 2018, they brought out mm -hmm. a, a report that talked about uh, environmental assessment timelines and yep. compared it to the U.S. And generally, the U.S. Uh, did things uh, about 19 months quicker than what uh, approved projects, 19 months more quickly than Canada did. But a lot of that came down to something that the Americans don't have in their legislation or their constitution, which is uh, Aboriginal consultation. That that was the thing that distinguished the or caused a lot of the Canadian. So how do we, you know, how do we manage Aboriginal consultation, uh, given that that's largely a federal uh, responsibility? How do we do that to to in the reforming this process? Yeah, you got another three hours to talk about that one, Mark. <laughs> um, that that is a really important feature. Um, both for right, uh, we, we want rights and title to be respected. We are looking to improve Indigenous economic reconciliation, and then there's also the the aspect of it where a lot of these projects, almost all of the projects that we're talking about, take place right proximate to indigenous communities. These things aren't happening in downtown Toronto. They're not happening in, in downtown Edmonton. They're happening right at the communities that are at the interface there. Um, so we're talking about rights and title. We're talking about reconciliation. We're also talking about localized impacts. And so all of those are important to deal with. Um, the how of it is 
I, I think a bigger question that we can't fully get into here, it, it's evolving. Having economic participation of Indigenous groups is a big part of it. It doesn't solve the whole thing. But going back to that cooperation and coordination angle, what you don't want is all these separate groups coming to the Indigenous groups one at a time. First, the feds show up, then the provinces show up, then the proponent shows up, not necessarily in that order, but over and over again, asking the same questions, asking for the same information. That's just a headache. That's a pain in the ass. And who has like the resources and the time to be able to deal with that? So that is one of the elements of coordination that's really important to get right. Again, what they're doing in BC, sometimes in other places, going together so that everybody's hearing the same things and making the process more efficient for everyone. Okay, well, let's talk about part problem number two, which is low confidence in the process of federal decision-making. Uh -huh. And give us your take on what the solutions could be here. Yeah, we have heard from a lot of people in industry who say we are not even going to attempt to put in a project under the Federal Impact Assessment Act because we just don't know what's going to happen to it. I mean, obviously, there you could get a no because it's not a good project, but we're not certain that the goalposts aren't going to change, that the decisions aren't going to be politically motivated, and that uncertainty is a, a, a huge killer in this. We have uh, a couple of different solutions, and the two ones that I want to say, the first is making decisions about deal breakers early. So there's some things about a project that are known. For example, with Northern Gateway, it came at the very, very end. We're not going to have a project in the Great Bear Rainforest. Well, you could have known that one on day one. Um, similarly, the, the, the general level of GHG emissions that are going to be associated with project or the type of project that it is, these big things that can be known so early need to have a decision made early and then that decision has to stick. If you're not going to kill the project at a very early stage based on those things that are known, you shouldn't be bringing it back up at the very end of the process. So finding some way to make those deal breakers stick is important. The other thing that, that we're suggesting is having more than one minister making the decision. Right now, the decision is made at the end by the Minister of the Environment alone. But when the Impact Assessment Act was brought out, it, it, it became about more than just the environment. It became about the clean energy transition. It became about the finances of the country. It became about a bunch of things. And so we think that there should be two or three ministers making that decision jointly. Um, the Minister of the Environment, yes but also probably the Minister of Natural Resources and the Minister of Finance. And that would align um, the process with the intended goals of what the Impact Assessment Act says that it is. And there's precedent for this. British Columbia, for example, does exactly this with two ministers. So we think that would give it a little bit more stability and a little bit less fickleness. Now, uh, you know, oil and gas CEOs, pipeline company CEOs may have low confidence in federal decision-making I have low confidence in the Alberta Energy Regulator. Mm -hmm. uh, listeners will probably know that I've been working on uh, the Unethical Oil Series. Uh, parts one and two are done. Part two is about conventional oil and gas production. I'm on writing part three, which is about the oil sands. And I've interviewed a number of, of former uh, employees uh, of the AER, including Dr. Monique Dubay, their former chief scientist, toxicologists, on and on and on. I've interviewed scientists, law, you know, environmental law professors, on and on. And they make the point that the AER is hopelessly captured by the uh, by the industry. The, in fact, the industry pays for it uh, and treats it like a, a client. And I have no confidence whatsoever that the AER would do an adequate job 
And there's lots of evidence around this, the way that they, uh, for instance, treat um, coal mine applications. Uh, just as an example, you can anybody who wants to can listen to my interview with Dr. Lauren Fitch about that. So the Alberta may may not like the feds, but there's an argument to be made that Alberta needs to clean up its own backyard before it criticizes anybody else. I, I think that there's plenty of finger pointing to go around. Um, Very diplomatic <laughs> am, of you. I am not going to get drawn into 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 that particular fight, but I I will say you know my my own personal feelings about uh, project approval and 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 that's something that's near and dear to my heart. I've been working in this field for for quite a long time. Is we want something that is protective of the environment and protective of society and rigorous and transparent and inclusive and meaningful and a whole bunch of other stuff. We also want it to be efficient and timely and and relatively predictable in terms of the process of it. Um, so I would not say that we have a perfect system. I, I do think that um, Alberta's taking the federal government to court. It's you know it's it, it's interesting in that way because the argument is about the constitutional division of powers. It's not about who has a better process. So in some ways, the the analog to what you're saying, Markham, is the question is who gets custody of the child? It's not, it's not um, the neighbor who is a better parent necessarily. It is um, who, who has legal responsibility for, the, for, for owning this thing with all their flaws. Um, so, so that's what the fight is about. And, and it is not about who has a more robust uh, process for managing impacts. Well, okay, that's fair, what I fair say enough. About it. But I, I want to put that on the record. I, I, I want to. I think that that uh, the the focus in Alberta for far too long has been on what the feds do mm. poorly or well, mostly poorly is what they argue, and the problem is is as acute, if not more acute, in the provincial regulator. Done. Okay, I've made my point. Let's move on. Problem Point noted. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Problem number three, policy decisions devolved onto the project approval process that should be addressed through other governmental processes. Yeah, so the the project approval process has become the battleground or the boxing ring for a lot of issues that are really important to people and to society and legitimately so, um, things like cumulative effects and legacy effects and GHG emissions. But the project is the wrong level to solve this at. And we're suffering in a lot of areas from a lack of policy. Um, these are policy things that have to be done at a policy level. And then you can have projects come in and you basically hold up that project to the policy and say, does it match or does it not? And it also, um, when these things are dealt with in under a project assessment process, it's so frustrating for people who care about those issues, because it, it's just not equipped to deal with that. So we need policy uh, to deal with policy issues. And, and there's some things that are that are leading us in this direction. There's there's some land use initiatives. I know that, for example, the um, within Alberta, we have uh, I, what I think is going to be a revival of the land use planning frameworks um, and certain industrialized zones that will be looking at particular geographical area and say, let's look at the whole thing and then figure out what we're going to allow in here. And that allows a project to come in and just right size to say, does this project fit within these parameters or no? I, I want to uh, interject here and, and note that there are 11 uh, sub, uh, regional, I think sub-regional planning plans that need mm -hmm. to be completed. Only two have been completed in Alberta. So, 
if you know that I, I would agree with you that because I've read a couple of those those plans and they're very thorough and it is a good guideline for industry and for government as to what can go on and how it can go on and what the concerns are within a particular area because you know northern Alberta is not the foothills of the Rockies there's very different ecosystems very different mm -hmm. environments and so that makes perfect sense but Alberta has been dragging his feet on these regional plans forever and it it hasn't and it's only approved two. So if if we're going to put those regional plans in the mix, then Alberta has to get on its horse and get this stuff done. Absolutely. The, the, the other places that policy can extend to are things like, what does the federal government think about hydrocarbon development? So I, I pointed in this report to what the UK is doing, and they have these national energy policy statements. And uh, they have broad ones. They have very specific ones for things like LNG and nuclear and blah, blah, blah. Um, but they very clearly say, this is what we need. This is what we support. This is how it fits into our economics, our industrial needs, and our sustainability plans. But this is what we're going to support or not. So it's not a mystery to everybody about is this type of project acceptable or not. It's laid out in black and white in advance. And so, again, then when a project comes in, you have something to say, this is how it fits. So policy decisions made in the policy arena, that's our problem and solution number three. Well, problem number four is overly long process and slipping timelines. Yeah. So, I, and I and I get this. I mean, uh, we've seen this over the over the years, uh, where big projects in particular get you know their timelines are always extended. They're over budget. Some of it's due to regulatory uh, issues. What are the, some of the solutions that are available? Yeah, I mean, this this is a hard one. We we just saw, for example, the Roberts Bank Terminal Two approval. It was in that federal assessment process for 10 years. And then it starts in with the permitting. Permitting is, is outside of the approval process. It happens after the project approval, but it's huge. So for example, the Trans Mountain Pipeline required over 1,500 provincial permits. And I don't have the exact numbers on, on federal, but probably a pretty close to an equal number of federal permits. So the process does not stop. And so it makes it extraordinarily long. Um, some of what can be done is firstly, figure out what's a project of national importance. And we decide this is a really important one. It goes to the front of the queue and let's get it, get it done. Um, another one has to do with cleaning up, um, who has to do what and coordinating within the federal and federal government and then across different orders of government and reestablishing something like the major project management office to do that coordination. I want to make a point here because I did a lot of reporting on the Trans Mountain expansion uh, when it was being challenged by British Columbia and the city of Burnaby back in like 2016, 2017. Mm -hmm. And this issue of national uh, importance is a key one because the, the the prime minister said it was of national importance, but there doesn't seem to be a formal mechanism for de for designating a project of national importance. And the reason, listeners, why that's important is because that goes to establishing federal jurisdiction, mm -hmm. because then the the uh, the regulator, the NEB at the time, the Canada and Canadian Energy Regulator now, actually has some of the powers of a court. And so it can rule on these kinds of jurisdictional conflicts, as it did with the city of Burnaby and, and BC, and, and determine whether something is of exclusive federal jurisdiction or not. And, and the national interest determination is important to that. And I can see where that, you know, th that can be frustrating because just because the prime minister says it in a news, you know, a, a news uh, interview, doesn't, does it make it so? You know, yeah. there's... 
it's, it's, it's a it's a it's a really good question and and i think the legality aspect that you bring up is really interesting i think even if you're not talking about an official national importance designation that has some sort of legal stamp with it it either at the federal level or even at the provincial level you can still identify what's a priority project and from the top down you know one, one of the things that makes this all really slow is the lack of coordination across different departments and to basically order the different departments work together figure out a way to get this assessed fairly, but quickly. Um, and I think that is not necessarily a bad thing, particularly for those projects that are needed to unlock other kinds of things, like transmission lines, for example. Right. We've only got a few minutes left, Marla, uh, but problem number five is overly large scope. Can you give us a couple minutes on that? Yeah. So that that one is has to do with the what it is that's examined within the um, the, the scope of um, assessment. I, I should start off by saying a lot of people got their knickers in a twist about things like um, the gender-based analysis plus um, and the intersection of, of sex, gender, and, and I, I don't remember, and other identity factors was how it was worded. I'm, I'm, I'm in favor of that. The, the fact that we're looking at this is not a problem, but the problem in general of scope creep and more and more and more being added on is a problem. There needs to be a lens of saying, um, will this issue either affect the decision or will it affect the conditions or mitigations? If it isn't, then it is simply an academic exercise. And um, I, I think that the federal uh, impact assessment agency has had a hard time pushing back against other federal agencies that are interested in getting their pet topics added on to the, to the scope. And, and, They've had a challenge in pushing back against the public. If the public says we're interested in finding out more about X, for them to say, actually, it's not going to affect the decision. And so they they need to be able to um, make those risk-based decisions a little better to keep the scope in check. Well, Marla, this is a really important issue for Canada because, and for the Western Canadian provinces in particular, because uh, natural resources, Canada is uh, still largely in the 21st century, a hewer of wood and drawer of water. How we get mm -hmm. our resources extracted and off to market matters. And so this is important. We'll, we'll be following this issue and uh, maybe in six or 12 months, we'll have you back to talk about this one. And with any luck, we'll have you talk sooner about some of the other <laughs> issues you're working on. So thank you Thanks so much.